Ant Wilson. That right? That's right. I mean, that's a pretty easy one to, put, yeah. to pronounce. As you are, yeah, you're the CTO of Superbase. All right, cool. You got a nice, easy title name. <laughs> <laughs> Ant Wilson is the CTO of Superbase. Ant, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Great to have you. We had Paul on a while ago, and we'll talk about some of the things that we talked about with him and expand in other areas. But before we start getting into all that, let's hear a little bit about who you are and what your kind of history is with programming. My name's Ant. I'm from Liverpool in the UK originally, and now in Singapore with some of the team here at Superbase. And yeah, how I got started with coding was, I think, building websites on GeoCities in the 90s, like a lot of people at the, at the time, and then trying to make things work in Microsoft front page and really struggled with that, tried to learn Dreamweaver, a lot of that stuff. And then it wasn't until I went to uni in the UK that I really got started with proper programming. I think before that, it was just a lot of hacking around, trying to install Doom 95 on the school computers and stuff like that with, you know, super hacky scripts and just trying to learn them by memory. But then I think at uni, I really started to learn Python and C++ and all of this stuff, which got me excited. I think the first ever full program I wrote was written in Pygame. It was like a game where you had to catch a 2D fly on the screen with chopsticks. And that was also like the first time I faced the collision detection problem. The fly would get to the edge of the screen and instead of bouncing back inside, it would somehow like glitch off the side because it's not an obvious thing to code into, into game logic in your first ever program anyway. And that was also my first experience then of 10 something that's a bug into a feature. And you just say, well, <laughs> that's just part of the rules of the game. Sometimes the computer inexplicably wins. <laughs> And then after that, I really went into my first job was in distributed systems, failover for high availability storage clusters. So got into ZFS, which is one of these super scalable file systems. I think they were the first people to use like 128 bit like address space for the file system, which I think means you can technically store something crazy like 16 exabytes or something of storage. So really got into the storage and failover side of things there. After that, just knew I wanted to go into startups. I worked for a few, started a few, failed a couple of times. And then that's how I ended up in Singapore was, you know, just getting involved with a lot of different startups and, and meeting and working with cool people. And you're someone who was actually fairly early to the blockchain world. And that was one of the early things you worked on. I'm curious what it was like doing that back then and now seeing where it is today in that progression. Definitely a lot of regrets. <laughs> Because when I think when I first read the Bitcoin paper was like the end of 2012, and I remember getting quite excited about it, but just from a technology perspective, never really saw it as an investment opportunity that in hindsight was a, a huge mistake. But just seeing how people are using, you know, these different data types to, to achieve different things. A colleague actually kind of talked me out of getting really into it at the start. Because he said, you know, um, and he was he was already talking about the the energy consumption problem, and he said, you know, well, if they can find a way to to not waste so much computing power, and they can like partner up with something like SETI at home, or it also does protein folding as it's creating these hashes, then maybe it would be interesting. But I think at the moment it's just a bit of rubbish. But I bought I think I bought a couple, and then it wasn't until like three years later. That I saw on the news that then it was like a thousand dollars, six thousand dollars, 
and it made me sit up again and and kind of pay attention. Then I yeah I, I sort of did a bit of blockchain development on the side for a few years, and then thought, well, I really want to go headfirst into this. At the time, I was doing a semester abroad in China at the university in Beijing, and one of the professors there was running this blockchain project, so they let me help out, and that's when I really started to get quite into it. You're obviously from the UK. You said you was from Liverpool. If you're not from the UK, Liverpool is basically where the Beatles came from and has a very strong accent. So there's that. Um, but what I find really interesting is you went to university in the UK and there's always a lot of questions when it comes to developing and building products, becoming a developer, coming into the community, into the space, what languages to learn. And there's a really big stigma, I think, sometimes around university and having a computer science degree. Personally, I studied computer science for three years and got qualification. Has it really helped my career as a JavaScript developer? Not really, because I learned C and C++ constantly. Yet you could say some of the paradigms moved across, but apart from that, I feel like my degree never helped my JavaScript skills. So I was wondering what you think of and look back on your degree. And if you not necessarily think it was worth it, but it helped you get to where you are today in terms of your programming skills. And if you think you could have done it without having a degree. Mm, yeah, it's a great question. The choice of languages, there's definitely a lag in most universities. You are kind of developing on maybe the previous generation of languages. At the same time, I think starting on something like C++ makes you work harder <laughs> when you're writing code so that when you finally discover things like all oh, these JavaScript frameworks, you're much more appreciative that you can work very quickly. And it's something I've been thinking about a lot, actually, because like I said, my background was primarily Python and I had to make the transition to JavaScript. It's a funny one because there's a lot of like positive transfer you get from moving from language to language or framework to framework. But you also get like this negative transfer of knowledge, which means that for the first few years, I was like trying to write JavaScript as if it was Python. <laughs> I even did a few job interviews back in the day where I got that feedback directly. It's like, well, why are you writing this as a for loop and not as math and things like this? So it's definitely two sides. I think the work we're doing now, a lot of the infrastructure, you know, we're starting to manage like a large amounts of databases and API servers. The theory kind of, I can see it coming in more and more in the trade-offs and decisions we have to make about the infrastructure and the way it works. I mean, there are definitely parts to it. One of the modules I remember the most was a software engineering practice module, which was probably the most useful. That's the one where they introduce you to Git. And there was one lab in particular where they basically did a simulation of what it's like to build a web app and effectively a startup. You would build a web app and they would just start hitting you with requests. And it would be like the request would say like, oh, what's one plus one? And you would have to write some code to create the correct response on the web app. And then it would get more complex and it would say like, oh, what's the capital of 
France and you would have to write some code that would respond with Paris and you slowly building up all these things and there was a big scoreboard on the wall which was like every time you responded correctly you got some points if you threw a 500 error you would lose like you know a thousand points or whatever and then once in a blue moon you would get like tech crunched so they would send you like a huge amount of like requests rapidly and if you responded well then you would obviously fly up the leaderboard but if you threw a bunch of errors you would drop off completely so stuff like that was exactly the kind of stuff that we then experienced in the first six months Superbase actually is like you're going to hit scale you're not going to be ready you need to make some quick decisions about how much time to spend writing tests versus how much time like rushing out these new features so i think there's obviously some useful stuff that i've probably never looked at since what about o notation on queries (laughs) yeah i mean yeah but that's an interesting one because it does occasionally pop up pop up I would imagine it comes up more if you work at a database company than the average developer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably, yeah. (laughs) Which sorting algorithm is the most effective one? Uh, I don't know, whichever one Stack Overflow tells me. Yeah, and it's a good point as well because also all the stuff I learned about file systems and block storage and stuff like this is, to a certain extent, that's abstracted away by like AWS now. And the fastest way to get up and going is to just defer that work to them. If you're really optimizing for a specific project, you might need to dig in a bit more. But like what we do is we create databases and storage systems that are supposed to be generic because people are building different applications on top of us. So at the moment, at least, it's better that we just defer it to them. For you, though, that's about knowing the right database to pick out of the myriad options and how to actually make the most out of this huge source of databases that are being given to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the biggest things that any university can learn. You don't have to do everything yourself. There were so many modules that we was tested on doing a whole solution ourselves. One of my modules was sorting out a whole bunch of data to find out what date, what weather was and the average date. And it's like, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. Sometimes there's already a service out there that's a weather API that you just says, give me the average for this day. You know, and I think there's a lot of things universities and every organization can learn about teaching programming. But then there's a lot of it that it doesn't teach you. Did you ever do a module on talking to an API, like a third party API by yourself using like REST calls? I never did that. You kind of just got chucked into it sometimes. My big question, following on from university, how much do you find it's helped your career to not necessarily give up your roots, but to move away from your home country, to move to another country, to look for and to work on opportunities? It's clearly helped a lot because this is where I met my co-founder in in Singapore and, and a lot of the early team here. And it's definitely useful to move to technology hubs to effectively just meet like-minded people. It's probably becoming less of an issue now, right? Because of COVID and, you know, the fact that we did YC remotely from Asia shows that, you know, you don't necessarily have to move to Silicon Valley to run a Silicon Valley startup anymore. And there's a lot of benefits that come with that as well in that we also don't have to pay Silicon Valley engineering rates because it's so expensive to live in the Valley. People can effectively live wherever they want. We still get access to top talent. I was in London for a few years first. It was definitely an important move then, but maybe now it might not be as important. And did you move to Singapore before you met Paul or after? 
Before I moved for an accelerator called Entrepreneur First, which runs in London, it runs in Singapore. There's a few locations around the world. We were both on the same cohort, but we were running different startups. I was working on a crypto project. He was working on building the metaverse, but we ended up living together. So we lived in a house with a bunch of other people from the program. And that just resulted in sharing a lot of ideas and ultimately talking a lot about the first version of Superbase. A lot of people say picking a university, where to do your first job is big decisions in your li- in in life. You're still young by the looks of it. So moving to Singapore must have been one of the biggest decisions you've made in life. Yeah, yeah. I'd done the China thing before. I think it was about 12 months before that. And I knew that I loved the idea of being in Asia. I mean, it's just the place that's most different to being in the UK or being in London in terms of culture and new languages and new food and all of this stuff. And the thing about Singapore is people also say it's like Asia for beginners because you can come here and continue to speak English. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, but it definitely makes running a business a little bit easier as a as an English speaker. I love it. And I think, like I said, if it's a choice between going to San Francisco now and spending all this money and dealing with US politics versus living in Singapore. What's wrong with US politics? They're totally fine. <laughs> no one has any problems. Cool. Let's get into the beginning of Superbase. I'd love to hear the origin story of how you two decided to create this company, how you landed on the idea, what sort of testing went into it and all that. It actually started with Couple with Paul. He was working at his previous startup and he built a chat system on Firestore and they rolled it out and then he realized that they were dropping some messages because there's this limitation on the number of writes per second you can do per document, which is kind of one of the issues depending on what you're using it for, you might come across. And so he just thought, well, he doesn't want to build around that restriction. So he swapped it out for Postgres. But obviously the first thing you lose is this real nice real-time functionality where you can just subscribe to the changes from the client and receive them directly. I think he tried a few Postgres solutions that were built around like triggers and notify. But the restriction there is like the payload can only be so large. I can't remember specifically how much, but there's a cutoff before you need to do an extra fetch to get more data out. So not that scalable. I think at the time he also wanted to just learn Phoenix and Elixir, the framework. So he basically built his own real-time engine, which listens to the Postgres write-ahead log. So it basically pretends to be a replication database, receives the full stream, and then blasts it out over WebSockets. So that was literally the first version, just this one real-time engine. He put it out on GitHub and on Hacker News, and people just really liked it. Elixir is quite a cool framework, and this solves a big problem for a lot of people. So it got a bit of traction, and that's when we said, well, there's other stuff we can build here. We can build in the REST API. We can build in the storage API. We can really start to bring these tools together. How cool would it be to have, I think at the time, we were talking about like this template library where you just have your whole business in a box and you click install and you just get everything you need and all you need to do is write the front end. So basically what people have been doing with Firebase, but just on a fully open source stack. And that was the thing that was most exciting for us was just like, well, then you can take it and basically do whatever you want with it. And it's just so extensible. That was what got us really excited. 
Very cool. And we went into some of that with Paul on our previous episode, and that'll be in the show notes as well. And we've talked about your whole history with building auth and having to migrate a bunch of databases away. So there's a decent amount of super base lore already we got here. Let's start getting into some of the things that have been built out in the previous couple months since we last talked to Paul. I know that storage has been a big thing that you've shipped. So you want to talk about that a little bit? Definitely a big one for us. All the Firebase features, we just get requested them one after another. So it's it's always balancing which thing to deliver next. The other ones are like offline sync for mobile functions and things like this. And we just felt like storage would be a really big win for a lot of the things that people are using Superbase for, web apps and mobile applications. Again, it's just super exciting to see some of the things people are building, like the first TikTok clones have started to appear. And the best thing about that is they've also open sourced their code. So now if you want to build a TikTok clone, you just take that application and it just comes with everything you need and it's connected to storage and all of this. That's been super exciting. Functions is also something that would be interesting to get into because you had a blog post where you talked about how you were looking for something that would be kind of similar to AWS Step Functions, which is a more niche AWS service that is like a Lambda state machine is kind of how I would describe it, which if you know what those are, is actually kind of cool to think about. So I'd be curious how you landed on that in particular and how that's been going as you've been building it out. The cool thing about working on Superbase is we are using Superbase to build Superbase. We're building a service for people where we use the database, where we use the real-time APIs and all of this stuff. We thought a lot about like, well, what problems are we facing now? And the problems are things like when someone signs up, we want to send them an email, welcome an email. We want to kick off a bunch of spin them up a new database. We might want to send them a follow-up email after three days to say, you know, how are you getting on? Here's some cool things that you might not have seen about the product. So we were just lacking this engine, this effectively a workflow tool. I think in the past, if we were just working on a some other startup, we would have used Zapier or something like this and plugged it in. But we saw it as just another opportunity to either take some existing open source tool and package it together or, or build something ourselves and include it as part of this kind of ultimate package. So we just started looking at the different options. We knew it would make sense to use Elixir again, just because of the scalability. It would work really well with our existing real-time engine. It allows us to provide a clustered solution for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of customers who themselves also have millions of customers and scale that horizontally as we need to. But then we really didn't want to reinvent the wheel on the specification language. And I think step functions is kind of like something that a lot of tools have already been built around and something that's relatively straightforward to learn. Basically just making it super easy for people to port existing applications or plug into their existing workflows. So you mean like AWS specific things or more like open source kind of libraries that like interface with it? Exactly. Or, or if someone's written a bunch of a use case for this is triggering Lambda functions as part of your workflow, that interface already exists between the state's language and triggering the Lambda function. So it didn't really make sense to reinvent our own state's language. So we thought it best to just adopt theirs. And would that be comparable to like X state? I'm not super fluent with state machines, so... There's actually, you can choose some of the examples we've written are just in YAML and it's kind of, I wish I had an example handy, but it's more just like saying, do this task, which might be invoke this Lambda function. 
wait for five seconds or wait for five days. Yeah, look at some code and you're right. It does look a lot like YAML, actually. Yeah. The thing is, it's dependent on how complex your workflows get, then it can get a little bit out of hand, but it's also kind of the best solution we came across, I think. I see state machines as one of those things where it's like, you rather have a gun and not need it than need it and not have one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The cool thing is actually just this morning, I was looking at the front end designs for it. So we're using, or we will be using React Flow to basically just drag and drop the workflows together. So people don't have to use the language. They don't have to write the code themselves. They can basically pull in a bunch of existing components in a UI and hopefully make it a lot easier. But the same with everything we do, we, we like to make the first experience super simple, something like this, but also give people the ability if they want to, to dig in deeper, add more customization, get their hands dirty in the code if they want. I saw a video you put out that was really cool where you did a demo showing how to connect to a database using Repolit, which is like an online IDE. And it was one of those things where once I saw you do it, it was like, yeah, obviously like you can do that, but I'd never even thought of it before. I'd never seen anyone do it before. So I'd be curious, like where you got the idea for that? I just thought Replit's really exploding at the moment. It's being used by code students everywhere. I, I really see it as the most useful tool I've seen so far for like people learning how to code. The main reason being that you can just open a new tab and start coding, I think. And that's just, in terms of usability, it's the best thing I've ever seen. You've got this whole multiplayer thing and people working together. And I just thought, well, there's no reason why someone couldn't just integrate Superbase in here and just start throwing data around and listening to real-time streams and doing all this stuff. So I just thought, purely for experimentation initially, like, why not? And the same thing with something like Webflow. In a couple of lines of JavaScript, you can basically plug Webflow together with Superbase and then just have all these new possibilities of things you can build. Well, did you see the recent web containers thing from StackBlitz where you can run Node in the browser? Oh, no, I didn't see it. Yeah, it's, it's using WebAssembly. And so like the first reaction is like, okay, so we're using WebAssembly to run JavaScript in the browser. Like what? <laughs> but it's kind of interesting when you think about it because it gets into how can we just make the browser the universal runtime? You should check that out. I think you'd find it interesting. I think that just makes a lot of sense. The client has been getting fatter and fatter for years. We're at the point now where it doesn't make sense to have that many native programs and native code. And every time I have to download a new client to join a video call or something, I'm just thinking, why do I need to run this native code? Why can't I just do it through the browser? So the same applies for coding as well. So do you think you'll get to a point where there'll be an entire IDE built into like Superbase? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I think, I mean, we're kind of not far off with the SQL editor that we have at the moment. I think as long as the experience around connecting to GitHub and managing that whole flow can be done in, in a nice way, then I would love to move in that direction. One thing that's not very attractive is like, if you go on Auto0 dashboard, for example, you have to write your Auto0 rules in Node within the browser. And there's a lot you lose, like I say, the version control. And if you've got like a really nice local setup in VS Code or something like that, you lose a lot. But if we can get there, if we can add those last few bits, then I think, again, there's no reason why we couldn't just be coding in Firefox. I struggle with this philosophically all the time because I 100% agree with you that as like a learning tool, if you're starting from complete zero and you try and like start someone off 
with like a whole development environment and everything. And it's like, you're, you're saying that to fail with all these tools that let you just write code in the browser. Then at the same time, you look at something like Cloudflare workers, they have a really great IDE to like write worker functions in the browser and getting the Wrangler CLI installed is like a huge pain. It's really hard, but once you get there and you just run commands to like deploy your code and write it straight in VS code, like that's when you're like, okay, this is the way to go, even though it's a little hard to get there, but it's really the way to go. So this is something I know you've been working a lot on with local development in Superbase. Could you talk a little bit about how you're trying to get a good local development environment to work with something that's kind of cloud native to a certain extent? Yeah, yeah. No, that's funny. Yeah, we're, we're going the other way. We're bringing it back local. It's one thing that is pretty important about as we build out these open source tools that we actually make sure that people can run them themselves. One of the things that attracts people to Superbase and Firebase is the fact that they're super easy to use. So when you have to do a lot of configuration on your local machine and orchestrate these services because Superbase is, is a lot of different services at this point. Just the storage APIs, the REST APIs, real-time APIs, auth APIs, the database, like a whole list of things that need to be orchestrated, basically. If it's one step too difficult, then no one's going to bother. And so if we want people to like contribute, you need to reduce that friction as much as possible. At the moment, we've got it down to you do uh, NPM install Superbase and then you kind of just do like Superbase up and it'll, as long as you have Docker installed, it'll spin up all the services you need locally, unless you're on an, an M1 Mac when I think we're still patching some of those Docker bits together, but <laughs> definitely trying to reduce that friction as much as possible. There's some stuff that just is difficult, like configuring the auth server isn't that straightforward. So there's also like a little bit of people do have to do a little bit of work to understand the options there. I really think in the next five years, the industry is going to be flipped on its head yet again, because within the last, what, two years, we've seen mass adoption of VS Code. Two more years will go by. I think we could see a mass adoption of GitHub's code spaces, the code spaces. So that's VS Code in the cloud. And also, what's the other company that makes? Oh, Code Sandbox. Code Sandbox. Yeah, there we go. I think Code Sandbox is really the stealth player here. The reason why it hear me out is that they bought an application that's on iPhones and iPads called play.js. If you've never used it, it is early, but it allows you to use your iPad or your iPhone to basically build React apps completely on on your iPad. You're running like Next.js. Oh, that's cool. In like a native IDE style. What I think the most interesting about it is I think we'll come to this point where it's universal to like work on something that you can just work on a code base wherever you are, no matter what tools you have on you. More cloud infrastructure, less dependent on devices. I think what's actually really cool about this like Play.js is what Anthony was saying is that people that have never developed before, I could load up this Play.js click the Next.js sandbox and it literally loads a whole Next.js app without ever even touching a terminal by literally clicking the play button. It loads Next.js, Next.js is running. Any changes you make, it literally is, it's made. It's complete full Next.js. And what's really interesting that is the reason Code Sandbox bought the application, obviously to bring in the team, is to go further so then you can deploy from the application. You can do more. It's really worth the read. 
I think it's on their website about their acquisition. But I think this whole universal container, but just for an IDE, is yet to take off. But the patterns are forming. VS Code are obviously doing it with GitHub Spaces. And Code Sandbox are doing it further into other applications and even native ones, such as an iPad app. I hope they do do something big and impressive because it's quite scary like how far ahead GitHub is of everyone else in all of developer experience and controlling the stack. I mean, it's great. I love it. But it's just a little bit concerning that it's all owned by one company. <laughs> Very much so. You could say that's why people are also back in Code Sandbox. Yeah. Sometimes you, you forget and you're like, oh, this is a VS Code because it looks quite a lot like VS Code in ways. So going back to these tools being good for learning to code, when I was in my boot camp, I actually did not have a working local environment. Like no one could get my my NPM to figure out how, like I couldn't start a development server on my computer, period. So I used Code Sandbox for all of my assignments for like two months. I would code it all in Code Sandbox, put that on a Git repo, and then deploy that to Netlify. That's how I developed. That's how I learned to develop. <laughs> and so it's not at all crazy to see this as the future of dev, you know? And I actually talked to Ives about getting like Redwood running it in Code Sandbox, and there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening there. Yeah, that's awesome. I really can't wait. I still remember the days of going to conferences, and you go to like a conference workshop, and the first 30 minutes of the workshop is setting up your environment. Like, it's just dreadful. <laughs> There's a lot of people in the Apple iPad community that's like, we want we want to run code on our iPad. And it's like, well, it's already here if you just look a bit, you know, closer. Because, you know, you got Tables Plus on your iPad. You got GitHub. You got, you got all of these tools. You just need to look a little bit closer. And we're almost there without realizing it. You've recently started doing a weekly build in public series. I'd be curious... What was the reasoning behind starting that and how you're thinking of what sort of content to do and what step to build in public? Probably one of the main drivers is just to show people how easy it is to contribute. Not how easy it is, but coming into open source for the first time can be a bit daunting. You don't know what the rules are. You don't know what the culture is of that particular project or organization. And I think that's probably the biggest well, it's at least the thing that stopped me early in my career from coming in and making open source contributions. It wasn't that I didn't know how to write the code or how to make the fixes. It was like, well, what what are the rules here? Like, do I need to speak to someone? Do I need to ask someone's permission to even work on this thing? So I think just like putting a face to the repos and saying, you're welcome to come, you're welcome to work on whatever you want, you know, just drop me a note, leave a comment in, in this YouTube channel now and get involved, I think breaks a few of those barriers down. And really just getting the tools out there. I'm a little bit gutted because I, I work a lot on the infrastructure side at the moment where there's a lot of secrets on my screen at all times. <laughs> A lot of super-based secrets and some internal code and stuff like that. So I haven't had a chance to do a full session yet. I did start one, which was the Twitter integration for GoTru for the auth engine. I got like 30 minutes into the stream and I realized that all I was doing for 30 minutes was just reading the Twitter documentation. And I was like, this is, isn't interesting for me and it's not going to be interesting for anyone else. That was I sort of uh, had a bit of a false start on the live stream. And the I would say you'd be surprised because it's not just that you're reading the docs, it's that you specifically with 
all of your experience and context are reading the docs and you're, you're showing how someone like you would go about reading the docs. So people who watch streaming, they want to see more of you going through the process of doing it. So, and maybe it was super boring. I, I don't know, but that's something to keep in mind is that people are interested more so in the process and you kind of talking out your thought process, like as you do it. No, yeah. And we're definitely going to do more and more in the coming months. It's just great to have that content. Another false start we had was me and couple did one where we built an example application and we didn't realize that you had to specifically ask Twitch to store the video afterwards. Just a lot of lessons being learned. <laughs> in terms of secret management, I really recommend Doppler if you've heard of it. It's currently quite small as a startup, but basically what the whole premise is, it just removes all your secrets. So they hold all your secrets for you. And then every time you go to start your application, you basically prepend your command with their command and it'll inject your secrets into your application. So you've got no need for like a .in file. This is really good if you're on like a stream or something because you never got an in file to leak. And if you have to add a key to Doppler, it's like all confiscated so you can easily add a new key without seeing all your other keys. I really recommend Doppler as well. If you're using multiple team members that all have multiple keys for like dev environments and that it's a super useful product i'll check it out aside from what we've already talked about is there anything else coming up that you're excited for with superbase i mean on the auth side we've got a bunch of stuff which is like mobile otps like 2fa i think on the last podcast with couple you asked us why we were still using auth zero in our own application instead of superbase auth yeah, I think that was me. Yeah, we're in the process now of finally mo moving that over. So that'll be out soon. Some other things are like helping people launch on Superbase. You know, I mentioned that we've got more and more people building cool stuff. It would be great to kind of get all these people together and think through with them, like what their launch process is going to be, how they're going to get more eyeballs on, on their projects and help them bug test and stuff like this. I think I'm pretty excited about that. Anything else you want to ask, Chris, before we close off here? I'm personally still waiting for our stars to align so I can use Superbase. It won't be a long time until that point is that hosting all your infrastructure in DigitalOcean sometimes, you feel too in like in the deep when you don't want to be. It's like, please, just someone else abstract it for me. But then it's the whole thing of like, okay, if I want to then abstract all this DigitalOcean stuff away, what things would replace it? What's the infrastructure around that? How's it, you know, stay online, etc. Current events, Fastly went down yesterday and took off half AWS's websites because they also run on Fastly. And it's this thing of like, well, you can't complain. Your DigitalOcean droplet didn't go down because, you know, you run it all yourself. It comes with pros and cons. So I guess my final question were, would be, what's the most exciting thing that gets you going and out of bed every time you hit a slum in Superbase? Because obviously you're a co-founder. So, you know, I feel it myself in my own company of like, you have slum moments and you, you say to yourself, what am I doing? Is it all worth it? You fall back on yourself. And then you remember a key pair of information of like, yeah, but we've achieved this. What's that for you would be my final question. We have a lot of different projects on at all times, which is, is a lot to manage. But the nice thing is that if you ever get in a bit of a rut with one thing, there's always something else that, you know, you think, oh, well, 
you know, what would be cool is if we, is if I worked on this for a few days and built this new feature. And then when you're, you know, in, in higher spirits, then you can crack on with the difficult tasks that you were slogging through. So that's definitely one thing is having a few different projects that you can move to depending on what mood you're in. And I think I just really enjoy a, the, the immediate team that we've built, working with those people. And then because it's a community-driven product as well, people are always contributing. Like someone this week did the, the Go libraries, someone else did the Swift libraries. Just getting to work with and meet these new people who are all like pulling in the same direction effectively just can be really uplifting. Thank you for your time. Um, where can listeners of this podcast find you? I'm on Ant Wilson on Twitter. Superbase is superbase.io or superbase underscore IO on Twitter. Thanks so much, Ant. As someone who's been watching Superbase over the last year, it's been really fun over the last couple months in particular as like all these people are discovering Superbase and being like, oh my God, have you heard of this thing? Superbase is amazing. <laughs> so like, yeah, Superbase is, is pretty tight. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, congrats on all the success and we look forward to seeing you know, where this goes in the future. Yeah, thanks guys. Thanks again for doing the, the late and early starts. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of the things about uh, this new world, isn't it? Just for our listeners, it's now nine o'clock in the morning in the UK. What time is it in Singapore and California? I'm at, like just coming up to 4pm, which is actually great for me. Yeah, it's 1am here in California. Everything for the pod life, as they say. <laughs> Awesome. Thanks, man. That was fun. Yeah, that was awesome. That was good. I, did we, um, we didn't send you any swag out yet, right? Um, I do not have swag, no, but I would love some swag.